I told the last hour the same thing. I actually don't love you guys very much, but I do love him a lot. So no, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, it's really great to be uh, with the family of God this morning. I, I love uh, getting to spend time in different church bodies and, and with the congregation in different places. And I love preaching with you guys. I had a ball last time I was here. And so um, this is not uh, weather I'm used to. It does not snow in Phoenix at, ever. So just so you know, like I was... It like got cold enough to do it one time and it, it like spit snow for about 11 seconds. Every kid like passed out and lost their mind. I was in the second grade. So it, that's not a, or grade two is a better way to do that. Sorry if that was confusing for you. Um, I got up this morning, I walked into Lucas's kitchen and uh, I came out and uh, I, I threw a scarf around my neck like this and then kind of wrapped my coat around it. And he goes, uh, what are you doing with that scarf? And I said, well, I just put it on to keep my neck warm. He goes, do you have any idea how to put a scarf on? And I said, um, I think I just did. This isn't complicated. He goes, apparently it is. And so he said, you know, take the ends, and he showed me how to put a scarf on. I was like, I've never done that before. The only scarves I see are for aesthetic purposes with hipsters back home. So I did my best, and I was wrong. So I learned something this morning, and uh, hopefully you will too. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go through a couple of passages of Scripture at the end of Luke chapter 10 and the starting of Luke 11. And I'm going to boil the whole sermon down to kind of one main concept, and it's this. How do we approach God? And I think that can be really challenging sometimes because we hear all these different, God holds all these different positions in our lives, doesn't he? It's like you sit back and you go, well, he, you know, he's, 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 Jesus says that I don't call you, you know, this gospel of John, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. And then we hear he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We hear that he's our father Jesus, our brother, we have all these different places that God approaches us from, if you will. And I don't know about you guys, but that's, that's confusing for me sometimes as to how do we interact with God in, in some of these ways. And so I've entitled this sermon, The Fatherhood of God. <clears throat> you guys will have to forgive me. I've been sick this week, so if my voice is crackling I'm, or, or getting deeper, I'm not trying to sound masculine. Uh, it's just I've been sick, so bear with me on that. It, to do this, it, this is kind of a big task, and so to, to try and reconcile how we view and approach God is sort of a lot when we talk about king and father and, and our place. So if you would, let's bow our heads real quick, and let's just pray before we, we take this on. Lord, we come to you this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, we really invite you in. Would you do what it is that you do? You have those holy, those divine transactions in our lives. You know, you're constantly exchanging things. You're taking some of our lowly understandings of you and you continue to bring us a better way, a better thing. You, you give us upgrades over and over again in how we view you, understand you, feel you, and interact with you. So my prayer for this morning is that all of us here together, that we would be able to, to grow in our understanding of you and that it would become deeper, it would become richer, it would become a more exciting interaction because we understand your love for us in a better way. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Would you join us? Holy Spirit, have your way in this room. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God, we have to tackle a concept uh, that not everybody in the room had the same experience with, and that's the concept of dad. <clears throat> Some of you had really great dads. Okay, Some of you in this room, you had the type of dad who was with you. He was present. He was patient. He loved you well. He was actually an incredible reflection of Christ's love for you, and some of you didn't. You know, some of us had an experience with dad where dad was distant, dad was disinterested, dad was absent, or in some cases even abusive. 
And in those cases, when I say we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God, I can lose a lot of you right off the bat just with the phrasing. And so what I want to do today is I want to kind of lay this out. Please, if that's your experience with dad, hang with me because my hope for this morning is redemption. Hope that God redeems a term in your life. It's the term of father. And what I want to lay out for you is a hope, and it's this. It's that the ground gets level at the cross. Whether you had an absolutely terrible father figure here on earth or an incredible father figure, Jesus Christ outshines all of them by so much that the difference between the two is negligible. And that's not to minimize anyone's pain. I just mean that your heavenly father has such a deep, overwhelming, all-encompassing love for you that I hope to open up in a little bit better way today that we look at it and go, wow, my earthly father may have been a poor reflection of my heavenly father, but the Lord is starting to redeem that in me. And to do this, we're really gonna look at two concepts of God today, and they're right here. We're gonna look at the concept of relationship and the concept of authority, and those really sound like juxtaposing terms. But to do this, we're gonna kinda look at the end of chapter 10 in the book of Luke, and I'm gonna read these five verses very quickly for you here. Starting in uh, verse 38, it says, Now, as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, and she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, to to kind of get into this first part here in the end of chapter 10, we got to understand our characters a little bit. we got these two sisters. They're sharing a home. They're sitting there, and Jesus kind of comes their way. And when Jesus arrives to their home, they both have a similar response. They're both excited. It says, Martha goes, please, come into our home. She says, hey, come and join me. Walk in. Let's, let's have you here. We're excited that you've arrived. And as they do that, the, the challenge with this little moment is the fact that after the rejoicing of Jesus showing up, they have two different responses. Thank you so much. Wow. Do you guys get this? Is this normal for you? He just walks in and hands people drinks. Thank you. Mm. That's going to work. Is that going to screw things up? (sighs) I'm going to leave it right there just to bother you. So, all right. Here we go. Martha. Martha has this incredible experience where she comes in. She rejoices that Jesus is here. But then you kind of watch the way she responds. She is very active. She's impulsive. She speaks her mind. And she goes to just scurrying about to and fro. She is a picture of anxiety and agitation. Mary, on the other hand, is kind of the quiet, considerate one. You can almost see these two have radically different personalities. She thought more than she spoke, probably. And she sits at the feet of the Lord, receiving counsel in this very relational exchange. She's a picture of devotion and commitment to Christ. You see, after they rejoice, Martha goes off, busying herself with providing a suitable refreshment and Mary communes with Christ. Now, I hear this a lot back home. It'll come to that point where it's like it's time to stack chairs or it's time to pray with people, and the entire congregation kind of divides in two, and they use this passage to justify their behavior, okay? When it's time to, like, pray for people, introverts look at me, and they go, I'm really more of a Martha. I think I'll go over here and work on stuff. 
And I'm like, don't give me that. You're just trying to get out of having to do something personal. Or other people look at me, it's like, it's time to stack chairs. Oh, you know, I'm more of a Mary. I'll be over here ready to pray with people. Let me tell you, all of us are both, okay? All of us exemplify both of these character traits, and I'm going to show you that right now. The reality is we all get trapped in cultural expectation. Anybody? Anybody? I mean, and this is what I love about this church. Bayview has so many different cultures in it and so many different ways that people respond, but we all get caught up in the trappings of life. And what ends up happening is we all go towards sort of a Martha thing. We do it in different ways, but we'll come to these places where we go, I'm so busy making sure that I'm who the culture or my friends or my loved ones think that I need to be. And sometimes we can put those ahead of our time with Christ. You know, Martha's distracted with serving and anxious, and what Jesus is about to do is so beautiful. He looks past her behavior, and he looks into her hurting heart. He doesn't just say, stop serving. He goes to the root of why she's serving, and that is such a beautiful thing. Martha comes in. Now, this is, this is unheard of. We're in a first century Middle Eastern culture, and what Martha says here would have been absurd, meaning she's pretty upset. She said, Lord, so first of all, she addresses him as Lord, but then she says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And then he, she instructs him to do something. She says, tell her then to get up and help me. This was unheard of. She would never have looked at a guest, much less Lord or rabbi, a teacher, a man of authority, and said, do something. That was not her place. So she is so mad at this point that she's going, this injustice cannot stand, and Jesus, you need to step in and tell her to move. And here's what Jesus does. He didn't come in and be like, girl, you know what I'm doing here. Like, go jump back in there and get busy. He looks at her and he says this, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. The first thing he says is he cuts straight to, he doesn't say, you're serving too much. He doesn't go after the behavior, he goes after the heart. What is it? You are, you are anxious and troubled. I love the way a scholar says it. He says this. He says, like a wise doctor, our Lord saw the disease which was preying on Martha and at once prescribed the remedy. Like a caring parent, he exposed the fault into which his erring child had fallen and did not spare the rebuke that was needed. This is Christ speaking to the heart. This is Jesus speaking the truth in love. Now, I'm going to camp on that phrase for just a second. When you guys talk about speaking the truth in love, here's what this ends up being a lot of times. <clears throat> I hear Christians come in and they go, well, I just need to go speak the truth in love. And what they do is they walk in and they basically look at an individual, they go, hey, um, you sort of suck at this and I'm kind of getting tired of that because it's affecting me, so if you'd work on that, that'd be great, and then they walk away. That's not loving, okay? Love almost, it is inextricably linked with relationship, so when you speak the truth in love, you should be coming to speak the truth in relationship. So what it means is, and this is the litmus test I use for speaking the truth in love, it should cost you something to speak that truth to an individual, not just cost them the precious price of having to listen to your wisdom. Now, I get challenged with this all the time. So I, I had a recent deal over this last year where I had to have a very, very tough conversation with a couple in my congregation back home. And the, the reason that I knew and I felt good about walking away, even though they had decided not to remain in my congregation after we were done with this conversation, is that I cried and they were upset. You see, it cost me something. 
I was deeply committed to loving them well, and I wanted everything in me, wanted them to stay, and to say, let me love you. And they said, I'm sorry, based on some of these cultural issues, we cannot stay here. And I said, well, I'm really sorry. And we, I wept at this lunch with them. They could see that I was broken. You see, so many times we, we come and we just want the truth to just be a battering ram. We just need to say our peace, and then we want to leave. My challenge to you today is when you speak the truth in love, we should prepare our hearts in relationship to come to someone and be willing to stay in the ring with them as they walk. The way the truth in love works very well is we, we open a brother or sister's eyes to something and then we say and we pull them closer, which is what Jesus is about to do right here with our good friend Martha. See, Jesus kind of lays it down right off the bat. He addresses the issue. He says this, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but then in verse 42, he does this, but one thing is necessary. Guys, this is the remedy. It's not just the rebuke, it's the remedy. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, all of us view life through a bit of a shame lens. It's just wired into us. Most of us, when we read this, we read something very simple. We read Jesus is basically looking at Martha and going, your sister's killing it right now. She's doing awesome. You are not. Now go to your room. We read it as a rebuke and ascending away, but I want to submit to you today what Jesus is doing is extremely loving. See, so he looks at her and he says, you have an issue. You have a problem here, okay? And that problem is that you're anxious and troubled. He says, but, but one thing is necessary Leave my presence right, it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say leave my presence, it doesn't say go away. One thing is necessary, he says, Mary's chosen the good portion, it's not gonna be taken away from her. Church, this is where Jesus is always better than the world. What the world says when we have problems is this, just stop doing the behavior. Just stop behaving that way, things will get better. Or in some cases, the world is so broken that it says, you don't even need to stop doing the behavior. If I can make you feel better about the behavior that you're doing, then you'll be okay. Your biggest problem is that you feel bad, so stop feeling bad. But Jesus is so much better than that. He looks Martha straight up and says, your problem, you're troubled and you're anxious. The solution, it's what your sister's doing. You see, he's calling Martha to what Mary's doing. He's not exemplifying Mary at a cost to Martha. He's going, I need you to put something down. It's what you're doing. It's anxiety. It's a troubled heart so that you can do the right thing. You can come and experience the remedy. You see, Jesus calls us away from behaviors that he can see are taking us apart so that he can call us to a better thing, which is the portion at his feet, the good portion. He's saying, listen, rather than taking this away from Mary, what I really want to do is I want you to join her. And more importantly, join me. Because everything you need, Martha, can be found in my presence. Now, here's where I want to apply this to our lives. Because I think this happens to us a lot. Anybody ever, you probably haven't, this is probably just me. Anybody ever gotten worn out by ministry? Right? It's just me. So it's this reality that we start serving and serving and serving and serving, and the next thing you know, you are just bone dry. It's this reality that we get into where we start serving out of our own capacity rather than the filling of the Lord. And here's my main point with all these things I've said about Martha and Mary, and it keys on relationship, is this. We need to put our Mary time before our Martha time. 
You see, if you go out and you try and serve the body to the best of your ability, but you're not spending time in communion with the Lord, you are running yourself dry exponentially fast. And pretty soon you start going, all right, you're sitting there in children's ministry volunteering every week. You're showing up and you're just like, yeah, all right, 342. Yeah, check them in. Let's keep them moving. All right, we got to get all these kids in here. We got to get them through the coloring books. We got to get them through. And it's like, it's not a joy anymore. Why? Because you're not communing with the Lord. There's no Mary time that's fueling the Martha time. You see, Jesus knew the solution to Martha was not that she'd never serve again. It sounds like this woman is gifted by the Lord to serve the kingdom with her hands, working hard. And what Jesus knows is, yeah, you've just, your gas tank's empty. So many times, as believers, we have a massive misconception about kingdom work. We sit back and we think, because I'm doing something for God, there's no cost. There is. Do you know why? Because you are serving an infinite being, but you still have a finite gas tank. And you will start running it dry. You need an infinite God to fill your finite tank so that you can serve an infinite God. Does that make sense? But when we sit back and we skip the filling times at the feet of the Lord, we don't have the ability to do the Martha thing. And then what happens? We become troubled and anxious. Do you guys see, this game has not changed in 2,000 years. The Lord is saying, the best portion is still with me. I heard a great guy say last summer, he was teaching up in Poland, and I got to sit and listen to him. And he said, you know the biggest problem that every evangelical is making right now is that they have made the reward of the gospel heaven. And the problem is that the reward of the gospel is not just heaven. The reward of the gospel is Jesus both now and in eternity. You see, Jesus is pointing to that right now. He's saying the best portion, guys, the best you will ever have is me. And it struck me recently that I can get so focused on preaching sermons and praying for people and being involved in Christians' lives that someday I'm going to get to heaven and I feel like at times I'm going to get there and go, man, Jesus, how about those sermons we preached and how about those people we prayed for and how about, and I'll look at the Lord in all of his beauty and go, this was always available to me. And I was so busy doing things that I forgot. I already had the greatest thing the world would ever see at my disposal. And I missed time with him in order to go do Martha type things. Does that resonate with any of you this morning? Your heart just go, oh man, I don't want to do that. And so in order to make sure we don't, we got to put our, Mar our Mary time before our Martha time. So we look at that. The key thing I want you to take away is that in this, what we see is that Jesus is calling Mary, Martha, to his side to, to participate in that good portion. And I need all of you to hear that because if you miss it, you are unlikely to dive deeper into a relationship with God that you think he doesn't want with you. You have to know that God wants relationship with you or you will never pursue it. And that's where we leave that relationship piece. We'll pick it back up here again in just a few minutes. So that's relationship. Now, from there, we look at this concept of authority. And to do that, we really have to understand the cultural backdrop that Jesus is dropping into here. So there's this concept of dad. And Jesus is speaking into a first century Roman culture. And I need you to understand what that concept of dad was like in the Roman culture. Uh, Roman fathers had an unlimited amount of authority in their children's lives. Here's what I mean by that. I did some research. These were some of the common decisions that dad made, dads made for their children back in first century Rome. 
whether a newborn would be raised in the family or outside of it, okay? So that's kind of a weird thing. What do you mean? I mean, if a dad is sitting there and they're waiting for their child to be born, uh, ultrasounds hadn't really caught on yet. They weren't really doing that just then. And so he's sitting back and he's kind of going, okay, child gets born, it's a girl. Dad finally goes, you know what? I got plenty of girls, okay? I don't need another girl. I need a son who's gonna help me continue to farm the land and work hard and do these things. I don't need another girl. Send her away. Let your sister who's barren raise her. Let the neighbors down the street, they need a kid. And dad made the decision as to whether or not that child stayed in the family, okay? Whether a child would be sold, exposed, killed, scourged, or pawned. These are really aggressive terms. Can we just agree? And yet dad made the decision as to whether or not that kid who couldn't like straighten up and fly right, who had all those disobedience issues, dad made the decision whether or not he goes, you know what, I'm tired of dealing with him. He's worth 30 pieces of silver. Just go ahead and sell him into slavery. We'll take the profit. And nobody questions dad. Lastly, whether a child would be allowed or refused marriage or divorce. Now that doesn't happen at five years old, does it? That is an adult decision in a child's life. And yet dad, for as long as he is alive, makes those decisions for his children, and nobody questions dad. I think this quote is fantastic. It's from a a Roman jurist named Gaius, and this is what he says about Roman fatherhood. He says, our children, whom we have produced in lawful marriage, are under our control. This right is singular to Roman citizens, for there are hardly any other men who have such authority over their children as we have. You see, it's this commanding, over overwhelming amount of authority. And what Jesus comes in with is this high level of relationship. So when he looks in the first, uh, the first words that he says here in the chapter 11, and I'm gonna read them for you, he starts with a very specific word, and all of this, everything I just described, gets imported into it. I'm gonna read these quick four verses in chapter 11. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. So we've had a scene change. We're not at Martha and Mary's house anymore. And it says, and when he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. First words Jesus says, Father, that we come to God as children. And he's saying that into this whole arena of what it means for dads to operate in Rome. Next thing he says is, hallowed be your name. There's this kind of show of reverence. Now, I don't know about you guys, um, but I can say this for our American culture. We're pretty irreverent in the American culture. Uh, Last hour laughed pretty heartily. We know we're irreverent. We're working on it. But um, it's sort of a thing for us. We just don't handle things with a whole lot of respect and reverence. And I think it's getting worse as time goes on. We kind of have this difficult deal. And so I wonder sometimes when I come to God, and this happens a lot. You guys guys might mirror this with me a little bit. But when I come to God, I'll be sitting there kind of in line at Starbucks. And and this is typical for me. I get a lot of prayer requests that come through my phone. And so I'll be sitting there working and kind of, Typing away, oh, I got a lunch coming up, so I'm confirming my lunch. Hey, are we still on for 12 o'clock? And an email comes in and says, hey, don't forget to pray for Bob. He's going into surgery today. So now I'm going to make the quintessential male failure that we all make, which is to think that we can multitask, which every woman in the room goes, 
You absolutely cannot. Men cannot do two things at once. And we've proven that a hundred times. That's how car accidents happen. So I'm sitting there, and I'm now going to multitask. I'm going to approach the throne of the king of kings, and I'm also going to send this text. And inevitably, I screwed up because I start typing and praying. It's like, Lord, would you be with Bob at our 12 o'clock lunch today? No, that's not right, right? And I'm trying to do two things at once. Now, I don't have a great definition for hallowed. Okay, is anyone still using this word, by the way? Are you guys running around calling things hallowed in your life on a regular basis? It's not a big thing for us either in the States. So I want to give you a picture for me of what really hit home on this concept of hallowed. Um, We went to New York and we traveled there and we were going to go through the 9-11 Memorial Museum, which was really powerful. Now, I know we have a bunch of different cultural backgrounds here. So for some of you who may not connect with this, in the United States... On September 11, 2001, the world changed forever. We'd never experienced an, a, a terror attack at that level on home soil. Some of you come from countries where it's, this, this happens often. This was very, very earth-shattering for us as a country. And for it to happen at the level that it did, everybody remembers where they were the day that those two towers came down. And I'll just warn you, I usually get emotional when I tell this story because I was so overwhelmed having gone to this museum so we showed up, we were in Manhattan, we were actually staying in Brooklyn, so we made our way over, and uh, we were late getting there. There was only two of us there, and I'll tell you, it wasn't my fault we were late, so you can kind of figure out who was responsible for that. But um, we got in line, we walked in, and the first thing they have you do is you sit in this beautiful auditorium and you watch a video. And as you're sitting there, you watch uh, our president at the time, George Bush, comes on, and he starts walking you through the events of the day. And he, you start seeing all these iconic pictures of him sitting with a group of grade school students who he was reading to that morning, and there's this very famous picture where he's sitting there with a children's book in his hand, and he's leaning back like this, and a Secret Service agent is letting him know, we're under attack. And you just sit there, and you go, that's right, this was a really big day. And like, everybody's chit-chatting in line before you go into this movie, but as soon as you come out from this film presentation where they've walked you through interviews with Condoleezza Rice and heads of security details and Secret Service agents, you walk out, and I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody is very aware of what they're about to do. The museum is absolutely beautiful. You start to walk in, and the first thing you do after watching that video is you come down this beautiful wood-clad hallway, and you see these screens that are up on the roof. They're hanging there, and they're projecting these quotes. You can see these words in quotes, and as you get closer, you start to hear over the the loudspeakers that are playing there, you start to hear voices, and you realize that the voices and the quotes are matching up, and you realize that what you're listening to is voicemails from people in the towers who made calls to their loved ones that day. It was their final words before they lost their lives in a tragic terrorist attack, and you realize that you're on hallowed ground. You walk to the end of this hallway and you come out over this beautiful veranda and it looks down onto the bedrock of what the buildings once sat on. And over to your left, there's the slurry wall that holds back the Hudson. It's now been reinforced on the other side because the buildings are no longer there to hold the weight of the water back. You look to your right and you see the etchings of the actual footprints and the steel columns where they've sawed them off to memorialize where the buildings actually stood. And in the center of the room, just standing there, lit up like a coloring book, is that iconic twisted steel beam that sat as a memorial for the time that they were stripping all of the debris away from ground zero. 
except it doesn't look like a steel beam. It's lit up with every FDNY and NYPD number that went in that day to save so many. And you realize you are on hallowed ground. You go through and you finish the museum and you come to this place where they walk you through an exhibition and you watch a time lapse of the events that took place that day. The first thing you do when you walk in is you see the impact of the first tower. And you look to your left and the next thing you see is Matt Lauer who at the time was with the Today Show and he was sitting there and he just looks over at his guest who was an author and he says, I'm so sorry we have to break away. Something's happened at the World Trade Center. And you realize you're on hallowed ground. You get done with the museum and you walk back up to street level. As you get up there, you walk out and you look out over these enormous reflecting ponds. They are the exact footprints of where the buildings once stood and now they've been hollowed out and they beautifully run down into these little squares where the water disappears. You run your fingers over the marble where the names of all those who lost their lives that day are etched. And you realize you're about to have to do something very, very weird. You have to leave this life-changing experience where you've just been reminded of the depths of sorrow that happened that day. And you have to go back out into the city of Manhattan, New York, and go back to vacation. <laughs> Feels so inappropriate. And yet, you realize that something's about to happen. You're about to leave hallowed ground. You were in a place where emotions were stirred, where there was a deep reverence and silence for what had happened and what had been lost on that very ground so many years back, and you have to leave that place. You will be leaving hallowed ground. And what it taught me, church, was that if I become this somber, this reverent about the loss of human life here on earth, tragic and unbelievable as it was, why do I approach the throne of the King of Kings on my phone? And what I wonder is if instead of having just 20% of my attention going to God on a phone in the line at Starbucks, if I might not be much better positioned to approach the throne of a king on my knees. You see, he's my King Jesus. He's my Lord of Lords, my Savior the one who gave everything to have me, and I come to him on my phone, I wonder if some reverence might not be a better posture when I come to spend time with him. From there, this prayer continues after we've kind of shown up, Father hallowed, we have this showing up position of reverence before a king. The next thing that Jesus instructs us with is he says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is a perspective that we need when we're in the presence of God, when we're praying to him. Our perspective has to change. It just can't be earthly. We have to look heavenward with our perspective. We have to look towards a kingdom that is both partially here and yet still in the midst of its fulfillment, someday to be fulfilled with the second coming of Christ. I love this quote by a scholar, J.C. Ryle. He says this. He says, the final setting up of this kingdom has long been predicted. Even from the day of Adam's fall, the whole creation groans in expectation of it. The last prayer in the Bible points to it. The canon of scripture almost closes with the words, come, Lord Jesus, come. And what Ryle is pointing us to in the scriptures there is this. It's Revelation 22. This is the kind of final two verses in the Bible. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And the last word in the Bible is amen. 
You know, I, I think for all of us sometimes, when we come to the Lord, it's so easy to be distracted by our earthly circumstances and yet forget that our hope is not in the now. Our hope is in what Christ has in store for us. It's a kingdom perspective that our hope comes from not an earthly place. It doesn't come from what we see here around us. It comes from what Christ is doing currently in us and through us and what he has that will someday invade completely. But at times, we have to remember that when we come to Jesus, we have to have a kingdom lens, and that lens is eternal. It's not just here and now, and it doesn't mean that we just like turn a blind eye to the things that we're going through. No, we attend to those things, but we attend to them with an eternal perspective, not just with an earthly one. So when we show up reverent and we have an eternal perspective, the next thing that Jesus tells us to pray is give us each day our daily bread. Now, I'm going to share a bunch of background with this one because this is one of my favorite biblical passages. I think it has more to teach us about how to do Christian life than many other things. So I hope that this is as powerful for you as it was, as it was for me when I first kind of wrapped my brain around it. Lucas talked to you a little bit about me being sober. I've been sober for a number of years now. When I walked into a recovery program, I'll tell you, I was a hot mess, like a dumpster fire, okay? Is any, some of you can resonate with that. You've been through times like that in your life. I was such a mess. I was 27 years old. I'm sitting there, and I come in, and I have this sponsor who's kind of helping me figure life out, and I'm sitting there, <clears throat> and in about 30 seconds on this one day, I decide that I just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I've just had enough, and he can tell. So he goes, Rustin, what's going on? And I said, well, I'll just tell you. I mean, I got all this stuff going on, okay? I mean, I don't know how my marriage is going to do. I don't know if we're going to make it through this thing. If we stay married, at some point, we're probably going to have kids. If I have a daughter, I'm going to have to pay for a wedding, and then I'll probably have to pay for college. She's going to want a car. I don't know if I can afford any of that. And then God only knows if we're ever going to be able to retire. I mean, this is just all coming at me so fast. And he goes, wow, that's sort of a lot. He goes, Rustin, do you have kids right now? And I said, well, no. And he goes, okay. Well, you know, you can't really handle your next 10 minutes, much less your next 10 years. So I'm going to teach you a little something that was helpful for me. And he said, anytime you get overwhelmed, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look down at your size 10 feet, and I want you to say out loud to yourself, stay where your feet are. Just stay where your feet are, Rustin. You will never be overwhelmed if you just simply stay where your feet are. And you know what? He was right. If I stayed in the moment that my life was like currently in... I think God gave us time for because he, he knew it was best for us. He knew if I just leave this thing with no frame and your whole life just strewn about in front of you, you'll never make sense of it. You'll constantly live in terror. So he gave us time to where he's like, you can only handle so much at a time. And in his goodness, he went, this is best. So I sat back and had to kind of reconcile this. Then I started reading through the scriptures and realized this is a song that the scriptures had been singing for a long time. Take a look with uh, me, if you will, at Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Anybody ever looked around at their day and went, yeah, there's enough mess here to keep me occupied today. I think I'll let tomorrow worry for itself. But the reality is, we all get stressed out. And I'm telling you, you're not stressed out because you're staying in your day. I will tell you exactly why all of us are so stressed out. 
We sit back just like I outlined, and it's probably not, maybe for some of you it may be kids and weddings and cars and finances. For some of you it's, will my kids do well? Or for some of you it's, will my job succeed? Whatever your worries are, here's what we're really good at as people. We're really good at sitting back and saying, this thing tomorrow, this thing next week, next month, next year. We can think about circumstances and things to do, problems that could arise into perpetuity. But here's what we're not very good at. We're not very good at imagining God's infinite resources alongside of all those tasks. We only imagine the resources that we have today. We can only see what we've got in front of us. So here's your problem, you ready? Simple visual. These are the resources you have. These are the problems you have over the next 10 years. And you do a simple math equation and you go, I don't have enough. So you're trying to accomplish all of the things over your next year, 10 years, whatever it is, and you're trying to imagine accomplishing them on the resources of today and you're out of resources. That's why we're stressed out, period. When we stay in our day, it's not a big deal. Let me show you real quick. If I told you right now that the world was gonna end tomorrow, Super Bowl Sunday was the last day you had on earth, you got anything to worry about? Like it's all gonna end tomorrow in a blip. No pain, just over. How's the rest of your day look? Pretty open, right? All I gotta do is sit back and watch Tom Brady beat the Eagles. That's easy, right? <laughs> I can do that. It's not stressful, is it? The things that deeply burden our heart, they're tomorrow. That's what we're worried about. And so the best object lesson in scriptures was this. The Israelites, they're starving. What does God do? He brings manna. Every morning, he dusts the ground with this snowy bread stuff, and they come out and they go, this is awesome. But they're just like us. They wanted to get ahead of the program. They didn't want to rely on God, so what do they do? They try and take some for tomorrow. Now, remind me, did manna keep well? No. Was it for a lack of ancient Tupperware? No. It turned to maggots and, and worms, and it was this gross little mush, and they had to throw it out. You want to know why? I can't prove this from the scriptures, but I'll just tell you. Based on the heart of God, I think this is why. He wanted to show his kids, no, 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 you will not get a hold, you will not get ahead of me. I want to show you every single day I will provide for you. Every day you're going to have to rely on me and me alone, and I will provide for you every day. I do not want you to provide for yourself. I want you to rely on me, and I want you to come to know a foundational principle in the scriptures, which is that I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. You can count on me. It was the best object lesson in the scriptures. So Lord's Prayer, we show up reverent, we have this eternal perspective, we stay in our day, and lastly Jesus says, and forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I love this. How many of you have had to make a really tough apology and ask for forgiveness? Every hand, right? You guys there? Here we go. This is the reality. It's humbling, isn't it? When you go and you have to make that prayer, you see what, what we do when we come with these first three pieces in place and we approach the throne of God, when we are getting ready to leave, the last thing that Jesus says to request is this, and forgive us our sins. We come to God and we go, will you forgive us? And we're so overwhelmed by his forgiveness that we then set out to do the work of forgiving everyone who is indebted to us. And what's the last part? And lead us not into temptation. Protect us, God. You see, we leave so humbled by his forgiveness that we go, will you protect us? We go out and we go to love the world well. We go to speak the truth in love humbly that it would cost us and not others. But that we, show, we would show the extravagant love of Christ in such an overwhelming way that the world would be turned to his beauty. 
See, this last place is that once we've come, we've showed up reverent, we have this perspective that only happens in the presence of God. We stay in our day because that's how we were designed to live well. We have to leave his presence humbly to go love the world around us. Here's kind of my final point. There's two things that I want you to walk away with today. It's this. It's the fact that the first one is God desires a relationship with you and he will help you grow in it. You see, if you don't understand that the Lord desires to be with you, you will never pursue him as your heavenly father. I say this all the time and I think it's really tough, but for those of you who really have that king perspective nailed, but you really view God as a disinterested cosmic disciplinarian just waiting to kind of rub your nose in your sin, I want you to picture every morning when you wake up and you kind of roll out of bed that Jesus is sitting at the foot of your bed. Remember, we say that we have a walk with Christ. That's what we have in this relationship. And yet so many of us forget that he's with you every day. Imagine him at the end of your bed every day. When you wake up, he looks at you and he goes, I'm so glad you're awake. I just can't wait to do another day of this adventure with you. I will guide you. I will lead you. I will love you. I'm so excited that you're up. The other thing I want you to see out of this is I want you to see that we need to come reverent before the king, but not be surprised when he calls us to his side as a child. Here's the challenge. If you don't understand God's authority, my generation's really good at this. If you kind of view Jesus as your cosmic buddy, he starts to get small. You see, you don't want to affect the way he exists. And and to be honest, you don't want to wrap your brain around that to a certain degree. Our call in the scriptures is that we would know God, but our call in the scriptures is not to understand him. Nowhere does it say, go and understand God. Do you know why? Because when the finite stares into the infinite, it gets dizzy. Like if we were to preach on the Trinity, you would go, oh, so we can't really wrap our brain around that. No, in fact, Moses, who spoke to him like a friend, all, Jesus, all God could say when he goes, how do you exist? All God could respond with was, I just, I am. It's just best that you leave that one alone. And I'll tell you, church, it's to your benefit that we leave God's existence alone because here's the problem. If you have a God that you understand, it's hard for him to fix the problems that you don't. You see, God loves us. He cares for us so much. And my challenge to you today is that, just like this last point says, we come before the throne, and this is how we approach the Lord. I think this is our posture. We come before him reverent before a king. We come and we're overwhelmed by his love and his care for us. We are absolutely blown away by how much he's done that we might be able to love him. And as we sit there with our heads bowed, just going, I I love you, thank you for all that you've done for me, we can't be surprised when he says, child, rise. I have a place for you at my side. I will care for you. I will instruct you. I will love you. Let me pray for us. So God, today we do, we, we recognize that you and you alone are the one who provides for us. It's you who cares for us. You will guide us. You will direct us. We realize that in these situations where we find ourselves overwhelmed we sit back and we have nothing but you to rely on we're so easily distracted we so many times find ourselves with circumstances we can't figure out and it's in these times that we have no choice but to sit back and to wait for you to arrive to show up and to do a deep work in our lives that only you can do Father today I just pray over the whole room Holy Spirit will you just For those who struggle with the relationship piece, will you just invigorate them with how in love the Godhead is with them? 
how much Jesus longs to be with them, that the Father loved them so much that he gave up his only son, and that you, Spirit, are the one who guides, leads, and directs them. For those who struggle with the authority piece, that that idea of being hallowed is such an incredible thing that you are approached by none when it comes to your glory. And so we just come to you today, we just throw ourselves at you, and as we celebrate even now in worship, just pray that you would give us just revelation, a deeper uh, knowing of who you are. We pray this in your name.